The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein welcoming you to the new year and to a new season of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. First of all, as I said before, Happy New Year to all of you. Our contract has been renewed, and we are going to do at least another half year, probably uh, continue into the uh, entire year of the program. And uh, just a brief segue that I think is of relevance if you were around uh, last month and if you heard the last live program uh, that was broadcast, uh, we discussed the Mayan calendar and the commotion associated with the Mayan calendar and I indicated at that point that if there were no more broadcasts, that means that the dire predictions did in fact come true. Uh, apparently they have not. And so I'm glad to say that we are back and we are proud to present a new season with some varying topics. And the topic for today, and I think it's one that's very intriguing, is the use of computers in archaeology. Computers have obviously overwhelmed the world. Uh, there is not a field around that doesn't use computers any longer. And I was rummaging through my idea pile with my assistant, and we have been so used to using computers and so accepting of the fact that they've always been around that we didn't even come up with this idea until uh, my assistant Natasha said, you know what, why don't we look at computers in archaeology and why don't we discuss its evolution and some of its common applications and the ways in which computers affect excavations and the post-excavation process. And my special guest on this broadcast is one of the individuals who has uh, effectively paved the way in classical archaeology for the use of, of computers. And uh, we will discuss that in detail, both in terms of how he started out and developed a pathway for uh, computer applications in archaeology. And we will develop the discussion to broaden our scope and 
assess how archaeology and computers are both dynamic and interactive and how extensively computer applications have made their way into the field. So my special guest for this program is Dr. Harrison Eidelyorg. And Dr. Eidelyorg is currently the director of the Center for the Study of Architecture and has been involved in very many facets of archaeology and computers and architecture because he is a classical archaeologian's work extensively in Greece. He received his Ph.D. in 1973 and has been involved in the Archaeological Institute of America and a variety of other organizations. And I'm very welcome. I'm very happy to welcome to the program Dr. Harrison Eidelyorg, and welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. So let me begin by talking about your earlier career, and, and I think this is important because, um, as we've discussed in previous programs, archaeologists... Uh, come from a variety of different backgrounds and they fall in and out of archaeology in very many different ways and your career is quite unusual because you got your PhD and then you departed for a brief period of time and then you came back into archaeology because you departed and and found a linkage to archaeology with the greater world. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you transitioned and, 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 and how you got started in archaeology? Well, I was uh, going to Athens to work on a project in 1975, a couple of years after I finished my degree, and I was carrying uh, an incredible quantity of photographic equipment because of the project and my own personal uh, interest in photography in an enormous case, aluminum case, that weighed a ton. And uh, as I worked uh, in Athens on the Acropolis, walking back and forth, I had to carry this huge case, whether I wanted a camera and a lens or everything I'd carried along. So I, I came up with the idea of a camera case that could be expanded. And um, when the job market in archaeology turned out to be fairly thin in the uh, late 70s, uh, I tried making this camera case. Uh, as it happens, it's where I learned to do computing. Uh, while running this little business to make a camera case. So, so uh, yeah, go ahead. It ultimately uh, helped me go back to archaeology with uh, a new skill. And I'm assuming that the time that you were designing this uh, camera case, um, this is obviously before the age of digital cameras. Oh, so yeah. you were talking about, we were talking about a number of, of different types of cameras and lenses. Right. I remember those early days when uh, even if the case was not awfully heavy, there was so much equipment to carry around that it was very often unwieldy, and especially if you went to remote areas, it was really very difficult to pack this stuff. So I'm curious as to, to how the, your camera case and design evolved, and let's start with that. How what, what did you actually do, and how did you change things? You went from the aluminum boxes, I assume, to an insulated uh, material bag. Is that how that worked? No, or? this was in the days before the um, insulated and uh, waterproof bags. So what we ended up making was a molded plastic case that had a separable hinge and a kind of collar that could be put in between the top and bottom. So you could take the top off, put the collar in, which had a shelf in it, put the top back on, and you had a two-layer case. Uh, you could do that ad nauseum. Uh, 
So you could um, disconnect it and connect it as you needed to, right. and you had, didn't have to be burdened with lugging it around all the time. Right. And it, it worked. It didn't sell particularly well, <laughs> but it worked. It didn't sell pretty. It didn't sell well. I can. No, it hit the market just when a, a a fairly similar idea hit the market in terms of the the way the case was manufactured, though it wasn't expandable, and also about when the uh, water resistant nylons came on the market. So, between those things and um, my own poor sales skills, um, the the case was not a huge success. I still have one. <laughs> okay. And you ha- we were able to actually funnel that interest into computers. And that- is that a function of actually running the business? Well, in part, in that uh, I learned to create uh, a database, what we would call today a database. Um, I-, I don't think we had a name for it back then. Uh, before the era of the PC, using what we would today call a personal computer in that it was small and portable and and by the the lights of the time, not so expensive. And I actually, using the language called BASIC, wrote um, a database program, if you will, that allowed me to keep track of all of the parts that went into the case, plus the finished cases, plus the salesmen in the field, who owed whom what, when, where, why, how. And doing that, I think, gave me an appreciation for what digital data could do in lots of places. That's fascinating. I remember, you know, having started out somewhat at approximately that time frame, the real, the, 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 the computers, the desktop computers really took a surge around, uh, if I'm not mistaken, around 1982, 83. Right. Um, a little bit around that time. So what kind of computer were you using? And, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you made that transition and how your initial database compilation and, and spreadsheet work, um, led you back into archaeology. Well, the, the computer I had was a vector graphics model. Uh, it had, I believe, 16K. That's K of RAM. Wow. Right. And uh, it ran the operating system called CPM. Uh, so right. this was before Microsoft, before uh, IBM got into personal computing in 78, 79. And uh, it, it, it was... The kind of thing that was very interesting for me, it, it uh, also, unfortunately, I think, allowed me to sit and worry about controlling that level of data instead of going out and trying to sell the camera case. So it wasn't necessarily the best approach. Um, but it did let me get a, a feel for what could be done. And, of course, in that time period, the technology was progressing fairly fast. So... By the mid-80s, I'd moved up to a personal computer running DOS and actually, I think at that point, running Unix because I had uh, this project still from 1975 to publish and I needed uh, computer-aided design software, which at that point, for my purposes, I needed Unix to run the program that seemed to, to do what I needed done. Uh, so it wasn't until the very late 80s that I moved back into the PC world and uh, AutoCAD as the CAD program then. So you were trying to basically balance two different elements 
you were looking at uh, databases and you were looking at computer software at a time when all of these technologies were just getting off the ground, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and often, of course, <laughs> they broke more, more regularly than they worked. Yeah, of course. What kind of computer did you use at that time? Um, the, the one that I ran Unix on was a Sperry model, and I remember being somewhat shocked when I took it apart um, and discovered that it was full of wires. It kind of looked like a spaghetti dinner inside, and I didn't expect that. I expected lots of uh, computer boards, but not wires. And you, you were sort of hit with a double whammy because both of these technologies, the software, the hardware, they were all sort of evolving at the same time. Yes, yes, and, and I evolving that- very rapidly and as today, for that matter, in ways that you just couldn't predict. Um, that's true, but but at that point, I think the threshold was so much more important because um, they didn't know what the building blocks were at that particular point in time, and it was much more difficult to make databases fit into the existing computer system, and you just had one or two that you could possibly do, and by the time you got into the beta phases, that technology was pretty much gone. Yeah, well, the the big database of the early 90s no longer exists today. I mean, the, the changes have been very difficult. Right, and I imagine it must have been very, very challenging to to get into that and to really balance your uh, need to uh, adapt the software to the hardware and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often it's a matter of trying to figure out what my own problem is first and then worry about whether or not the computer can help. And um, it it's not an easy judgment at times because until you've played with a, a particular piece of software for a while, it can be very difficult to know what it really will do for you in a pinch. And by the time you're there, then all of a sudden you have to worry about the hardware and its ability to actually uh, integrate with that. Yes, well, I can remember carrying a, a portable, um, quote-unquote portable, in the early 90s off to Greece and Israel and and thinking that I had made a terrible mistake, that I was no longer <laughs> capable of carrying that much weight over my shoulder for that many days. And this is now in the 90s already, right? Yeah. Right. Okay, we will be back and discuss the evolution of computers and archaeology and extend this discussion into applications after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back uh, with our special guest, Dr. Harrison Eidelyorg, who is one of the pioneers in the applications of computers to archaeology. And uh, we had been discussing how Dr. Eidelyorg had been out of archaeology and designing camera cases and developing uh, on the side software and trying to integrate it into the emerging hardware um, that was evolving at this time. And he apparently saw the very close connection between archaeology and the potential of uh, computers. And, uh, Dr. Eidelyorg, why don't you tell us a little bit about that transition, how you were able to see the connection between these two uh, major fields, and how you began putting them together in your particular branch of archaeology. In my case, I had uh, not done the final publication of the work in Athens that I did in 1975. I published what I found, but I had not made sense of it, if you will, and uh, done the, a final publication. So in the mid-'80s, when the camera case wasn't going anywhere, I went back to work on that and decided to try using computer-aided design software. At that point, it was quite new, and... I was not really sure what it could or would do for me, but I, my, my sort of gut feeling was that I could draw everything I had surveyed without worrying about how the pieces fitted together chronologically, because this was a multi-phase site, and that using the computer would let me then uh, reconfigure which phase or which material went with which phase and not have to draw it again and again uh, on paper. And as it happened, it, it worked pretty well initially, and as new software came out, particularly the program that's still around AutoCAD, uh, 
um, I was able to do some things that were, for me, just remarkably helpful. Uh, they really allowed me to take all of this physical material, uh, walls and blocks and steps and uh, uh, stuff that was, in some cases, very finely cut marble, in other cases, big, uh, coarsely cut blocks that had been used for the defensive wall in the Acropolis, and to decide, if you will, which pieces went with which other pieces in what phase, and ultimately to um, be able to make a kind of 3D computer model of the whole area of the entrance to the Acropolis and to try to make sense of it, and CAD make that made that possible. So let's break this down for the audience a little bit in, in, in more fundamental terms. You were working at the Acropolis, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, and you were working on the uh, structure itself, or were you working around it? Were you digging through layers in the vicinity? Because um, much of the most of the Acropolis is obviously exposed. What what were the excavations about? What I was working on was the entrance to the Acropolis prior to the grand building that is there now. Okay, Uh, the building that's there now was constructed late in the fifth century BC after the Persians had destroyed most of the materials on the Acropolis. And it replaced the gate, the old gate, that had been built into the even older fortification wall. So sometime in the very late Bronze Age, that is around 1200 B.C., the Athenians had fortified the Acropolis with what we traditionally call a cyclopean wall, that is a wall built of such enormous blocks that the ancient Greeks thought only the cyclops could have been strong enough to move the blocks into place. So there was a gate and this wall, and then um, the date is unclear. Sometime probably toward the middle of the 6th century B.C., so a full century before um, the, the height of all the classical buildings on the Acropolis, there was some kind of a ramp built leading up to this. And then at the very end of the century and into the 5th century, there were other modifications. All this had been dug up um, at least three times before I was there in 1975. But those who had excavated previously had missed some cuttings in the bedrock inside what was thought to have been a sort of standard rectangular building that was an entrance building. And the cuttings in the bedrock showed that an exterior wall actually went through that building in an earlier phase. It therefore meant that the history of the building and of the entrance had to be reconsidered, if you will, from the ground up. So what were the, the CAD stuff was so very helpful because I had right. cuttings, I had walls, I had I mean all little pieces, nothing more than oh four or five meters long that survived anywhere. Um, and so I had little pieces I had to keep um, refiguring which ones went with which other ones. Uh, I mean, as as an example, very late in the day, I was looking at this. CAD model on my computer screen, and uh, from a specific angle, I just ask myself a question. Well, what happens if these blocks that are limestone aren't there? And so I could turn them off, if you will. 
and and I suddenly see that all the marble that's left instead of the, without the limestone makes it really clear that some of the blocks that were separated from some of the others by those limestone blocks must once have been next to the marble and that gave me a new phase for the building if you will so you're looking at several components here in in the in the traditional archaeological sense you're looking at various phases of construction mm-hmm. several several time periods uh, clearly in the bronze age you're looking at a much much more basic archaeological assemblage if you will but you will have this ongoing challenge of trying to establish an equivalence between the occupation time frame, if you will, and the archaeological debris or architectural debris or structures that are associated with each phase. So my understanding is that you were able, by using CAD, to separate these out and establish these complex correlations between the archaeological record and the individual phases that might have been a jumble if you would not be able to use all this volume of data uh, to establish these correlations, and that, of course, is where the database comes in, correct? Well, here there's no database except the CAD model, which in some ways can function a bit like a database. Um, And that's something that I'm personally very proud of because I figured out how to make the CAD model, the bits and pieces, work, if you will, like a database. So so that's uh, right. in, In CAD... Because of its history in the, build, the big buildings, really very tall buildings, it allows you to draw bits and pieces in different what they are what they call layers, uh, a hangover from the days of mechanical drafting. But, right. but they are, if you will, data segments. And so I could turn on and off different data segments according to a whole slew of criteria. And therefore, so, I could say, well, show me what it looks like if right. all of the marble is showing, but none of the limestone, or if all of the bedrock is showing, but nothing else. Right. And in uh, manipulating the CAD drawing slash model, and we, we tend to use the term model as CAD got to be 3D instead of 2, because you really do look at it, and it's it's like looking at a perspective drawing. You can move around and have all kinds of different views. So as that got more complex and I could manipulate what showed and what didn't, uh, I could, for instance, look at only what is actually in situ, right where the Greeks left it. I could also look at only what was in situ, but stones that clearly were in their second setting that had been used somewhere else first. Right. And and doing this over and over again, I mean, this is not a quick process, and it's not as though I could turn the computer on and tell it to do X and have it figure it out for me. I was constantly asking new questions and figuring out how to make the computer help me answer them. To, the computer uh... didn't give me answers. It helped me see what was at least a hidden in the materials. To those of us, uh, to the, the the listenership that's not familiar with some of these terms, uh, certainly anybody who's involved in architecture or engineering 
uses CAD or computer-assisted design for their basic uh, design models and for preparing engineering drawings and for designing buildings. Mm -hmm. So that what you have done is you have taken this... uh, very, very sophisticated at this point, uh, design element and strategy and process and applied it to earlier architecture and then expanded that to look at uh, relationships between the various archaeological elements and the structures. And at that point, I mean, this is a pretty major achievement. We're talking about you know, 20, 30 years ago when this stuff was just developing, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, it's different from being the designer in that I have to take survey data and put it into the CAD model. I can't make up my numbers. Clearly. the, The designer gets to decide that this room is four feet wide. I have to go out with some form of surveying equipment and figure out exactly where this piece is, what this angle is between these two walls, um, how tall it is, and in the case of Greek architecture, because of the way it's built, um, you're always worried about how walls lean, because they are intentionally leaning. So I, it, the, the surveying process is really quite problematic, or was, when I did this in 1975. Uh, today, you just use a total station surveying instrument, and <laughs> it's uh, like falling off a log almost. Well, we will be back and continue our discussion with uh, Dr. Eidelyorg, Dr. Harrison Eidelyorg II, uh, after these words. And at that point, I think what we're going to throw into this entire mix is the entire question of databases, which simply adds another level of integration and complexity, if you will, to the picture. We'll be back after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. I'm back with our special guest, Dr. Harrison Eidelyorg II, who is one of the pioneers in the applications of computers to archaeology. And in his particular case, he was able to develop and apply the techniques and technologies of computer-aided design to his study of the Acropolis, the uh, enormous temple in, in, uh, in Athens, and he was able to integrate the data sets, the archaeological materials with the architectural phases and using computer assist- assisted design CAD technology he is begin he's beginning to synthesize the uh, various uh, building phases phases with uh, with the actual architectural structures. Now, into all this mix, we have the archaeological data and the the information that one is getting, and that brings us to the massive amounts of data that one would collect in places like this, where the archaeological record has been systematically uh, compromised. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how you were able to bring databases into the mix? Databases really go back fairly far in fieldwork, um, and it's interesting. They've become, I think, more and more, uh, I hate to use the word popular, but it's what comes to mind, as a result, I think, of a kind of shift in that when the databases started being used, obviously they were being used by people in the field who wanted to replace paper with computer files. What has happened is that now there's a huge emphasis on the need for the digital from the consumer side. That is to say, not the guy or the woman in the field excavating, but those of us who are sitting out in in our offices in colleges and universities or wherever around the country or around the world saying, I want access to his or her data. I want to be able to see the real stuff that they dug up. I don't want his analysis. I don't want her version of the truth. I want to be able to look at it myself and see what's there. So we've, we've had this kind of shift where uh, 20 years ago, the people who were, if you will, on the cutting edge were the ones using databases in the field. Now the pieces who, people who are on the cutting edge are the ones who are set, figuring out how to make that data useful across the Internet, not just within a project, but for anybody, anywhere, to be able to access the data. 
that is becoming now the the real challenge for archaeology, how to make it possible for anyone anywhere to gain access to uh, what you might call the raw data so that I don't have to wait for somebody to publish this site. I don't have to uh, sit around and say, well, I know they're digging over there, and I know that they're finding things that are relevant to my world. Um, I can, presuming that they'll share with me, get the data from them and begin to see for myself what they are seeing. So that really what you're, what you're seeing is, is you are trying to present a platform that will enable archaeologists, irrespective of where they work, to be able to look at your data and interpret it in, given, given the new information that you've been able to put together. Right. I mean, 30 years ago, if I wanted data from your project, it was time-consuming and expensive for you to provide that. It meant somebody had to go Xerox everything. Right. And, and nobody was going to do that, and nobody would ask for it because it was simply a, a ridiculous request. But today, if, if I'm doing it with a computer, sending you the data simply means copying a file and putting it on the Internet or sending it to you as an email attachment. It's, it's a, an almost trivial act. That's um, absolutely true, right. So it, it really changes the dynamics Whereas, uh, again, 30 or 40 years ago, the scholar in the field was the one who, in some sense, was doing the critical work. That's still true, but there also are scholars not in the field doing critical work by being able to access data from huge numbers of sites and aggregate that data and begin then to have new ways of looking at monumental quantities of information in one place, sitting at one desk. And I think the really powerful element of all of this, especially with respect to the data sets and the the databases, is that your locational information is so well documented. I mean, you have the coordinates and you have uh, using total station, you have all this information Mm -hmm. uh, located with pinpoint accuracy to some degree. And then you can turn that data in over to even a specialist on your own site to perform statistical analyses and to establish correlations on the one hand. And then on the other hand, like you say, I think this is really a major contribution here, is that the approach that you use will be valuable to people working in other regions. And right. They, and, and they will... it, it's, it's now really possible to think... I wouldn't say globally because we really are locked into different cultures that may or may not interact with one another, but it's possible to think well beyond a site or even a small area and and to integrate data from um, many sites that are related and, and where that integration is really meaningful. Right, you can do it. You can do it if you're doing regional studies, in, in in which case Greek classicists, for example, can can start to look at each other's work, and depending on on what they're trying to do, if they're trying to be synthetic and expand, say, a local model to something regional, they're mm-hmm. able to do that with a tremendous amount of control. And then you can go to a different part of the world and just look at the procedures and the co- context that you've established, and you can start to assemble these data sets 
of that are peculiar for your particular region along the lines of, of what you yourself have done. And I think that's an invaluable lesson and would be critical for oral archaeologists. But on the other hand, you have mentioned when we discussed uh, this, this during the break that there are downsides here, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I, I think in our conversation we can make it all sound very simple and as though the technology was going to make magic for us. But there are lots of problems. One of them is, in my view, one of archaeology's dirty little secrets is that our terminology is really terrible. And I don't know about your specific areas, but in, in my classical world, for example, just the term amphora, which seems a fairly innocuous term for the shape of a pot, it turns out there really are eh, half a dozen varieties of amphoras, and they're not very well defined, and we very often don't keep very good records. Um, there are little amphorae we call amphoriscos, and, mm-hmm. and the definition for that, it's very vague. Some people would say, well, it's got to be less than 20 or 30 centimeters in height, and somebody else would say, well, no, it's just got to be small, whatever small means. So the, the use of the computers depends to a bigger extent than, than in my view, a, a lot of our colleagues want to acknowledge on a really careful set of terms that have been well-defined and properly used. And in, in the classical world, particularly where the, the archaeological tradition is so long, we haven't even used the terms the same way from year to year, if you will, much less one project to another. So that's a, a very basic issue that I think we still have to deal with. Um, I, I, lots of people would disagree with me. Uh, but in my view, at least, there are lots of terminological issues that we have not well handled yet. In addition, so what you're saying, you're, what you're saying is we have to have a common denominator so that we can speak the same language. Yes. And taking it a little bit further in terms of what you've been able to do, to be able to mix apples and apples rather than to have apples and oranges, even within, you know, let's just say, the same farm, if you will. Yeah. You have to be able to have a common language, common terminology, and then it's much more possible to, to develop these integrative models that would have applications beyond your individual site. I think that's a problem in our archaeology, no matter where you work. Yes, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I'm not aware of what the specific problems are outside the, the classical realm, but certainly in our world, it's hard enough if you're just dealing with English. But for us, much of the material we're needing to deal with may have been published in German or French or Italian or Greek, and so you have not only identifying the terminology within English, but then making sure that there is agreement among the languages, not to mention between British English and American English. Um, and that's, that's, as I say, I think it's a more serious issue than uh, it's often credited to be. Um, but there are other problems as well. The te- this technology is also new um, that inevitably some uses are good and some are not. And, and I, I, I wouldn't want to try to say from any particular vantage point that's a good database or a good CAD model and that one's not. But as they get used, as people try to integrate them with others, it becomes clear that sometimes you have really good stuff and sometimes you don't. It's, I think, a matter of course with newer technologies like this 
that as long as there's lots of innovation going on, there is also a lot of work that's not quite up to snuff. That's a real problem today. You can't put two data sets together if one of them is really tightly done and very well uh, laid out and the other is not. Uh, you, you have, it's like trying to run statistics when somebody has been measuring everything to the nearest millimeter and somebody else is re- measuring everything to the nearest meter. The numbers don't correspond. So those, we are, will, those are issues, I think, as well. Um, we will, we'll, we'll have to take a break here. Okay. And we will come back and we will talk about uh, the additional downsides, if you will, about computers and archaeology when we return after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSCU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Good afternoon, and this is Joe Schildenrein again, and we're back with uh, Dr. Harrison Eidelyorg, and we are discussing the applications of computers to archaeology and, and architecture. Uh, Dr. Eidelyorg has done extensive work in pioneering com- computer methods for archaeology, in this case, specific focus on uh, classical Greece and the Acropolis in Athens. And we were talking about the amazing abilities that we have right now with software and emerging hardware as well that allows us to link archaeological finds, uh, architectural structures that remain from these periods, and try to put them into uh, a larger perspective that allows us to 
really assemble great interpretations of what what archaeological cultures tell us. And, and, And the main issue here, of course, is dealing with these massive volumes of information that we're now able to correlate, whereas before it would take literally years of using traditional mathematics and traditional spatial correlations to put all this information that now can be compressed into, uh, in some cases, a day's work or several weeks' work, um, where it would have taken professionals a lifetime to integrate all this information. And uh, we've been talking, however, about the downside of all of this. And uh, why don't you give us uh, a little bit more and and, uh, expand a little bit more about the downside and the fact that we do have to deal in the same scales and we do have to speak about the same types of findings and and why we need to sort of systematize and standardize the units of measuring and and the actual terminology that that we're applying in in these particular archaeological situations. It's a real problem for anybody to go out into the field and put into a computer all of the data he's going to collect. It's you have to worry about all the terms that are acceptable for you. You have to worry about what kinds of measurements you're taking if any. Um, there, there are all of these pieces that you have to put together into a database. So if you choose, just for example, and, it, and it's a kind of a gross example, to segregate your pottery as to Attic, Corinthian, Laconian, South Italian, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, something Cypriot, say, but, but somebody doing another project nearby separates his pottery according to, um, let's say, attic, but also shape. So he's going to know that it's a lekathos or a skiphos or an amphora or whatever his terms are. Uh, it's very hard then to fit together these bits of data because you have dissimilar collection techniques and dissimilar bits of information. Uh, it, that may happen because you've uh, done a survey with a different scale from what someone else does, but it's more likely to be in the terminology. As we were discussing earlier, it's a, it's a problem often in the field that uh, one set of terms is used in one place and a, a similar but not identical set is used somewhere else and the definitions are a little vague. So that but, kind of cross-referencing can be dicey. Uh, you right, can right, up- but... But with respect to that, and, and I think you're on to something very major here, um, but let's, let's take it back a notch, and, and I think this has always been a problem, even yeah. when you had very, very basic classification systems and sequences, be they pottery or chipstone or whatever they are, uh, of people working not only in separate but adjacent regions, but separate and adjacent uh, countries. For example, a, a classic case is, is if you're working in Pakistan and neighboring India and you're looking at the Indus Valley culture, they will often use different terms. Uh, they will have certainly different uh, sequences that uh, have a very, very sort of localized context and it's sort of very difficult to bridge these gaps. They've been done in many mm-hmm. cases. But I think what you're getting at here, and I think this is really very critical, is that now that we have 
have the tools of assembling so many, such great volume of data and so many different types of manipulations and correlations and we're able to put it together in so many different ways that now the need for this standardization becomes so much more significant because the potential is so great. Yes, uh, the potential is there and, and there are lots of people today trying to figure out uh, what mechanisms will work to allow us to aggregate huge quantities of data. So if we're yeah. not speaking the same language or we're not using the same measuring scale or any one of a number of those things, um, we're missing a big chance to do, do more work with the same data. And so that transitions into your one of your key peeves, I guess, which is archiving the data, possibly for future use by scholars once we bridge these other issues, that they will have easy, ready access to this information. So tell us a little bit about the archiving. That's a, a, it is indeed a crucial issue. Uh, when you record something in a computer today, um, the computer uh, program, whether it's a CAD program or a database program, records the data in a file in a specific format. That is, there are instructions about how we put the data in and how we get it back out. If you buy the same piece of software five years from now, usually it doesn't take that long, you just upgrade the software, about half of the time today there will be a change in the format with which the data are written and retrieved. Therefore, if I just freeze in time with that, with absolutely no consideration for any kind of uh, degradation of the physical device I've got the file on, if I can preserve that file exactly as it is for 20 years, the odds are very good that when you open it in 20 years, well, you won't be able to open it because the software will be so different that there'll be no way for it to recognize the file format to decode the file, if you will. And how do we get around that? How do we get around that? How do we get around that? What what we have in some places, and the best example, to my knowledge, is the Archaeology Data Service in York, in England, uh, which has been now in existence for about, I think, 18 years. They will accept files from people like us, although, of course, their major clientele, if you will, is British. They will save them, and then as the software evolves, they will keep changing the file format of what they have on file. Or they will put it into a neutral format that is still useful and change it from that neutral format to another one as the process goes on over time. So, for example, if I, in my own case, I have data from a project later than the one we discussed earlier, involving the Propylia, the grand entrance to the, to the Acropolis. I have databases from that work. I have actually exported from the database program into a neutral format, a format that is as simple as pretty much anything we can make so that it will be readable by computers, I hope, for at least another 15 or 20 years. Now, you can't use it without importing it into a new database program, but the format is sufficiently universal that I am banking on your being able to import that. So an, an archival repository, such as the Archaeology Data Service, will either do that same thing, put it into a neutral format, or 
keep moving it into new formats over time. To, to give so, you a concrete example, I use the database program called FileMaker. Um, I just upgraded it uh, in, within the last three or four months. All of the files that I use with FileMaker had to be changed, could be done automatically by FileMaker because I'm within, you know, a reasonable number of years of turnover. Right, right. Uh, and, and so now I can use those files. But if I were to run the FileMaker program that I had, the last iteration, it couldn't recognize these new files. So our data, our, all of this digital data is, if you will, fragile. It needs to be properly cared for. And as we are all fond of saying in archaeology, we destroy our evidence when we excavate. And so on that particular... really important. I, on that particular note, I think we're going to have to close. Uh, I think the future is bright. I think it's, it's uh, and I hope you agree with me, that we will hopefully get over this once we pay attention to the red flags that you've raised. And certainly the technology is there for us. We just have to be able to use it. And I would like to thank my very special guest, Dr. Harrison Eidelyorg, for enlightening us a little bit on the use and the abuse if you will, of computers in archaeology. And we will begin, be back again next week at the same time. In the meantime, stay well, and we will see you again. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.